Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Country Roads Confidential. I am your host, Chris Anderson. I am joined by Mike Casaza, the man you usually hear leading off this uh, this podcast. But today, he is in Texas, Arlington, Texas, in fact, for Big 12 Media Days. Mike, how are things in the Lone Star State? It's hot. Uh, it's busy. It's crowded in here, even though we're in this enormous football stadium. Um, but the good thing about being here is that I didn't have to drive. I flew, uh, got an Uber, so I didn't have to worry about a rental, and I didn't have to worry about blowing out a tire on the turnpike when I was driving, something <laughs> that you might know a little bit about. Yeah, it's been a great day for me. I am not in Texas. I am just enjoying all of the construction on the West Virginia Turnpike today and all of the 95-degree heat and changing tires in the middle of the interstate. So, but I am sure no one wants to hear about that because – it's Big 12 Media Days, as we discussed, and the biggest topic on our board actually had something to do with West Virginia, despite the fact that West Virginia uh, new head coach Neil Brown was not uh, one of the speakers today. He'll be up tomorrow, but West Virginia released a media guide, and in said media guide, there was a depth chart. Mike, you love depth charts. What was the first thing you thought of when you saw this one? I thought about how mad it was going to make them when I made a meal out of it because <laughs> the one thing it's transitioned, I think from old staff to new staff and probably from one staff at any school to the next staff, at any school is that that preseason depth chart doesn't mean much, but like, I don't think anybody looks at it and says, you know, Hey, that's the game 12 lineup or that's the bowl game lineup. And I think maybe not many people even look at it and say, that's the game one lineup because that's not, and if it is, they're in trouble because it's not very deep and it's got some holes in it and some places that are probably vulnerable for some change. Um, the one thing that I think is probably obvious is that that front line, the, the first line on offense and defense, it's not bad. It's not a four win team. Um, perhaps, unfortunately you play with more than two 11s, you know, and I think a lot of people say that the, the way you win and lose games or conference championships is with numbers 23 through 44 and maybe even beyond when you consider special teams or injuries whatever so that second line is is kind of what's going to fortify things and i think that's by and large what a lot of the, the preseason will be is sure let's make sure that you're starting 11 is fine and, and in particular you have the right combinations in the defensive backfield or on the offensive line and i think there's going to be some musical chairs in both those spots but more to that you know, who are your second string guys, whether that's situational as, you know, the spear may be different. Um, you know, what you may ask from your defensive line may be different for different down and distances. But for every game or every down situations, who's your number two at those spots? Because they're going to have to play a lot. You play a lot of snaps in this conference and you see a lot of offenses and, you know, 12 weeks. And they got some grinds with games in a row in succession. So they're going to need depth. Every team needs it. And. If you look at the start charts and, and the game experience, um, there's a lot of zeros in some of those second and third team spots. Well, you mentioned second and third team. Uh, for a couple of these positions, notably quarterback, there is no second or third team because we have everyone's favorite depth chart word or 
Jack Allison or Austin Kendall or Trey Lowe. First question for you. Do you take anything from the order that they put it in or do you assume it is alphabetical? It is alphabetical, but what it's interesting is if you go to running back, McCoy or Petaway or Brown or Sinkfield, that is not alphabetical. So, uh, again, I love Jeff Charts. I like to make a meal out of these things. So mm, maybe there is some type of an order. Maybe it's one A, B, and C, and maybe not just one, one, one. Who knows? But I think if you were probably to sit down and, and put the order in your head, I, th- I think the majority of people listening to this would probably go Kendall, Allison, Low, even if it's with or. So that's kind of compelling. Um, it, but I also think if you did the running backs in an order, even if it's oars, you'd probably go McCoy, Petaway, Brown, and Sinkfield, right? So I don't know if that's too exotic or if that's a lazy explanation, but um, sometimes it's just names on paper. Well, and the one or that really caught my attention, I mean, obviously quarterback, I was actually expecting that. I assume you were too and a lot of other people out there, but the defensive tackle spot, Reese Donahue, who has been a starter more or less the last couple of seasons, or fresh or sophomore sensation Dante stills one of the highest rated recruits who ever came to West Virginia and and had a solid true freshman year last year mm-hmm. what do you it's, what's your take on that because I think a lot of people actually before this spring may not have thought of them playing the same position even much less being in a battle for a starting spot together it feels like it's the veteran versus the inevitable don't you think yeah absolutely just kind of feels like that everybody likes Donahue and and he's a really good ambassador for the program and the team and the roster and all that. Um, I don't know. And maybe he starts every game, but maybe he's not their best player. And maybe the guy who plays the most or plays the best is actually uh, Dante Stills. Dante Stills has one way or another built him into a defensive tackle. Um, I think when people saw him recruited, you thought he'd be like maybe a 270 pound defensive end. It'd be just a terror on the end. Um, He's 295. And from what I understand, he's got some work to get to 295. Like, he's he's gotten big um, in a good way, too, I think. But he's also known he's had to build some size up to it so he can handle that defensive tackle position. But um, I wouldn't discount Donahue. He's certainly fundamentally sound. I mean, they had a good defensive end last year, and he started over him the entire year. So that was something that's probably not a hollow achievement. Um, Dante Stills is coming pretty quickly, though. I'll, um, I'll quibble with you for a second here. The ore that actually got my attention was at center and chase Barron is the obvious one right now, but the backup is Adam Stilly, who is a walk on, um, I believe from Martinsburg or Jacob Butchagosi, who we have no idea where he is and what his role is. He hasn't been seen around for a while, um, has obviously an injury history, but absent from that list is Mays, who was the backup center for most of spring, and he's your backup right guard. And again, this could just be names on paper, and maybe Mays is the backup center. But, you know, while Barron has played the most of all these names, he actually hasn't played at all at center. That's kind of concerning because that's the one person who touches the ball literally on every play. That's something that I think is going to get some attention in the middle of um, these conversations we have in the preseason. Absolutely. Because I think when we looked at Joe Wickline, offensive line coach last year, he was a, a big on get the five best offensive linemen and put them wherever you can. Um, Matt Moore, offensive line coach this year, told me back in February that his big thing is he likes to get guys, whether it's guard tackle or, or center, he wants to have them on a side, a right side, a left side. 
And then center is a completely third, I guess, side here. Um, and yet there still seems to be some movement, which it, which I find interesting between that center and guard spots. What will be curious to me is what happens on that right side to affect the middle because not listed in any of these spots in the two deep is John Hughes, who's the offensive lineman, junior college transfer, who played guard and tackle on the right side last year. And let's say he's really good as a right guard. Um, perhaps that bumps Josh Sills to right tackle, and that shores up the tackle spot, which is right now Kelby Wicklon and Tyler Thurman. Nothing against those guys, but if Sills is a better tackle than guard, he's going to be the right tackle when you figure out guard. And that could include Wicklon. Um, but perhaps Hughes is your guard, Sills is your tackle, and then maybe Mays is your backup center. I think we're talking about backup centers here, which is really deep in the weeds, especially in the middle of July. But um, we're looking at this thing and trying to figure out where people go and what's the question mark. And that's just kind of the one thing that stands out there because, again, that front – that first line isn't bad, but you're going to have to have more to sustain across you know many games for many months of the season. Before we move on to the the coaches who actually spoke today at Big 12 Media Days, you made me think of something else when you mentioned John Hughes. Is he your pick out of these late arrivals, these quote-unquote blue shirt type of guys? Is he the guy that you feel is most likely to crack this too deep, or is it somebody else? I think the punter has to be considered, right? There's no way they're going to ask Evan Staley to kick, punt, and do kickoffs. So if you're going to take one of those away, what's the most unusual of those three swings? It's the punt. Um, granted, the kickoff and the extra point field goal, those are different too just because of the, the violence and the swings. But the punt is the whole different mechanism, and they're bringing a punter in, we think, maybe, from Australia. I don't know where that stands. That's supposed to be coming. I can ask Neil Brown that when I see him. Um, but I think that's the one that just logically seems like the most important one. I do think that uh, Ruben Jones is going to play on the defensive line. And I do think that George Campbell is going to play at receiver, um, especially when you look at they really need inside receivers. And TJ Simmons has kind of hinted that he's going to play some inside this year, um, that he's more natural fit there. Now we'll kind of fill them out outside if George Campbell can play outside. So that helps that. But if you put all those in a hat and you pull one out, that's probably the right answer, not even knowing who it is, because I think they're all going to have to matter. But if you ask me, that punter is really important right now. All right. Well, when we get back, we're going to discuss the coaches who spoke at Big 12 Media Days, including, not a coach, but Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. So, Mike... Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby led off media days today, and he had some very interesting things today to say, including discussing the new coaches in the league and even pointing out or singling out Neil Brown. What did he have to say? What did you think of it? We mentioned this when we talked about in length about our preview. If you look at the poll, there, there were different tiers. 
I think this is what, what the, the first thing we actually discussed is that there were tiers and you had your first two that were obvious and you had your teams in the middle, but your bottom four were unmistakably the four teams and new coaches. And I don't think that's a bias where you're just like, oh, those new guys are going to be bad. I think those are probably the four worst. And I use the air quotes here in the middle of AT&T Stadium, worst teams in the conference. They're going to be OK. Some of them make bowls probably, too. But um, they just happen to have situations where the roster was such that there's a change you know maybe bill snyder let it go in the past couple of years certainly david Beatty had to go cliff kingsbury wasn't getting it done and dana i don't know maybe he saw the writing on the wall and this wasn't the best situation for him but those were the four weakest rosters in the big 12 i think so naturally you put him down there but also it's not an easy league to get going in and if you look at the success of first year coaches and even second year coaches in this league um rarely does a team come in and a coach sets it on fire um you know, you, you stub your toe a little bit first year, second year, and Gary Patterson and Mike Gundy and, and some of these coaches today said that, yeah, it's a struggle. Uh, Patterson said it takes two years to figure out what you have to do in this conference, which is not a good outlook for 40% of the league um, because you got to figure out every road trip and you know, what every team is like when they're on your home field and you know, what is the recruiting cycle like. And there's a lot that has to happen and you can't get it done overnight. And if you hear these guys talk about it, you can't get it done on one season. It's a process where, as you well know, Chris, just look at the recruiting. It takes more than a year to get your first full class in. Um, so if you're talking about building and replenishing your roster, that happens across over time. It doesn't happen immediately. Um, so I think it does make sense that these four teams are in for a struggle, not because they're new, but their situations are are just that, you know, they're the weakest, but also that there's a pretty sharp period of adjustment when you look at, at the same time, how good is Oklahoma, how good is Texas, here comes Iowa State, Baylor's on the way up. That's the equal part. That's four teams there. That's an equal part of the four teams that are in. So as much of the team is on the way up or as much of the league is on the way up, as is at the bottom of the conference right now. Something else that caught my attention uh, during Bowlesby's opening, and he maybe it caught my attention because he singled out the media and asked them to make sure they made note of this, pointing out that of six of the seven opponents in the bowl games for Big 12 were held under their year average, it kind of propping up Big 12 defenses. Is this was this a common theme? Is this something you're seeing from Bowlesby, from other coaches? What is this? It just feels like, I mean, every every October 31st, you put in a costume because that's what you do on that day. And I feel like every time they come to media day here, you have to talk about the defense because they want to put on a costume and make this league look different than it is. Um, and that, listen, that's fine. Um, and it's, it's, it's a reality that is massaged, so it can be whatever you want it to be. Um, these defenses are bad by and large sometimes, but also because the offenses are good. Um, you know, Oklahoma's defense is pretty bad, but it played some good offenses. Um, TCU's defense is really good, um, but it is good. It seems like every year because of who's in charge there. So what does TCU do? Brings back most of its roster on defense. And what does Oklahoma do? Goes out and hires, I don't know, I think one of the best up-and-coming defensive coordinators and, and Alex Grinch. So I think we're trying to see teams actively do this and get better on defense. And I think there's going to be some changes toward that direction because you know, we just talked about the new coaches, but if you think about it, um, Texas tech has been trying to get good on defense forever. Their defensive coordinator now is Keith Patterson, who was at West Virginia. He's really aggressive and he knows a little bit about this league. And he was with Matt Wells last year. Les miles obviously knows a good bit about defense and recruiting and talent, all that from his time at LSU. Neil Brown's bringing Vic Koning with a four, two, five, Chris Kleiman is a defensive guy at Kansas state. So, Again, here's these new four coaches, and how are they going to make their way up from the bottom? It may very well be defensively, so maybe that helps them fit in a little bit better, a little bit quicker. 
You mentioned Les Miles, the longtime SEC coach, kind of got thrown right into the fire here. Uh, first coach at Big 12 Media Days, and the first thing he has to discuss is Puka Williams. What did you take away from from what he had to say, and, and what kind of vibe did you get from him about his current situation? Did not want to talk about it, I would think would be the first thing. And, and I'll, I'll actually go to the end here. Ordinarily, when these coaches do this, this car wash where they come in and they talk on the podium for five or ten minutes, they take some questions, they walk out the stage and they go to the side and there's a swarm of people you know, waiting to talk to them. And it's national reporters and local reporters and people who couldn't get their question. And it's cameras and people who want to get, like, you know, more of the coach talking. Um, he went right through. I mean, he didn't stop and talk to anybody because I think he knew what he said was not going to come off great and also didn't want to talk about this. Maybe he's a rookie and he forgot or he didn't. No, I don't know, but I think that he knew his opening statement wasn't great. And if you go watch it, um, a couple of things stand out to me. One, you got to give him credit. He addressed it. He didn't no comment it. He didn't say, you know, we've already addressed it. We'll move on. Um, he did. He started. He volunteered. He gave an answer. Um, but he's reading from a statement. I think he had a, something prepared, which I don't know. Do you want to be a little bit more authentic or a little bit more genuine and actually speak from your heart or mind there? Probably. His points were okay early on, and I think what people don't understand is that the football teams, the athletic department, they have nothing to do with this, really. I think you might think that a football coach interjects whatever, but these investigations are so safeguarded and so monitored that you would find out typically if someone got involved to try to move some things in a direction that's better for football or athletics, and it really, by and large, doesn't happen. Um, so he kept saying it wasn't my decision, but I agree with it. You know, he went through a legal process at the university, but he also said that you know the kid had been through enough. It was seven and a half months. He couldn't lift weights with his team. He couldn't be part of his team. I don't think it's a good idea to make the the alleged perpetrator the victim in these things. And listen, that may well be true. Maybe the kid reformed and went through a hard time and has learned and maybe the seven and a half months of not lifting weight from either teammates stings. I don't think anybody wants to hear that. I think I would have reworded that a little bit. And finishing up the day, we'll, we'll come back to a couple of the other guys, but finishing up the day was Oklahoma coach Lincoln Riley. And it kind of circled back to West Virginia again uh, with quarterback Austin Kendall and his transfer. For those who don't remember Riley, and Oklahoma temporarily tried to block Kendall from transferring to West Virginia, or at least keeping him from being eligible right away. Uh, somebody, uh, probably with the North Carolina area code, which is where Kendall's from, leaked that to the media, and it got out. Oklahoma looked bad. They pulled back, and now Kendall is eligible. Uh, he was asked about that today, and, and what was your take on what he had to say? Here's the opposite. Um, I don't think Lincoln Riley saw this coming. Maybe he did. Maybe he's, he'd be naive to think it wouldn't come up, but it was the very end, and he was the last guy, and it's been a long day, and you're thinking, let's just get out of here. And no, he didn't. He went into it, and he said basically that while I like Kendall, and he was with me the whole time, that the rule is the rule, and I like the rule, and I don't think you should be able to be eligible right away in the conference. He said you have to look out for your school, and the schools have to look out for each other. And whether you agree with that or not, and I, I I don't agree with that. I think if you graduate and you're in good academic standing and you can you can fulfill the graduate transfer requirements, it shouldn't matter. Um, you've done all you're supposed to do for that team, um, especially when they're actively recruiting someone to play your spot. So I don't agree with his position. I do admire the fact that he had a stance and he was unrelenting. Um, he's in front of a bunch of people who are going to judge him and who are going to say he's wrong and they're going to criticize him and call him a hypocrite perhaps because of some things that have happened with quarterbacks that transferred to their school before. Um, he wasn't involved in that, and I think it's probably fair to say, but like 
he had his position and he stood with it. He basically said, I like him. Um, I just like the rule better, <laughs> which is a hard thing to say and probably a hard thing for people to admit, but he did. So I like that. But he also kind of said that at the end of the day, um, and I'm not sure how true this is, but he said that he realized that what was in Kendall's best interest was the best outcome for the story. And that's why he and Oklahoma reneged on it and decided to let him go. I don't know how in one breath you can say the rule is the rule. and We like the rule more than the player and then say, but we actually wanted to help the player because we like the player more than the role. So that's a little bit uneven, but now you're being very picky. So I think the fact that he had his position and he defended it, that's good enough for me, but certainly a provocative statement um, so many months later now. And finally, there's Gary Patterson, Mike Gundy, and Matt Wells were the other three coaches who spoke today. Um, certainly, you know, read through the transcripts, watching some video, a good bit of coach speak in there, which is to be expected, but, a few interesting comments from them. Was there anything in particular that caught your attention from the rest of the coaches? Yeah, I'll paint all three of those guys with one brush. Every one of those guys had a little bit of the, the cat and the canary. They both, all three of those guys looked like they had something or they knew something that we didn't know. Um, I think Patterson thinks he's a quarterback away from being really good, which is, you know, maybe not a great place to be in the Big 12 because you better have one. Um, but he has literally a handful of quarterbacks to choose from right now. They don't know if Matthew Baldwin's going to be eligible at Ohio State. Um, they've had some other really good recruiting wins the past couple of years, so there's a chance they can find one that's really good, um, and they're going to be good defensively. They have a lot of skilled talent back. Um, Mike Gundy said that he's more excited about this year than last year, and then this year there are many other years, and which is good because they've had good teams, and he generally knows his team, um, which is interesting because he also said that he let his team down last year, and they were undisciplined, and that cost them some games, which – makes their comeback against West Virginia remarkable because that was not the team's constitution. It was not a team that came back and played sound that you raised deficit, but they still won that game, not to you know, tear any scabs here. But And then finally, I think Wells is probably quietly thinking what a, a lot of other people around the league are thinking, that Texas Tech has a chance to be good. They have a quarterback and they have some continuity and they've been going in the right direction for a while. They're going to plug some holes with postgraduate players. Um, you know, why can't that be the team that jumps up and surprises some people? All three of those guys had a confidence that made me think, you know what, they they seem like they know what they're doing and who they have and how they could put it together. Well, that covers everybody today. And we got five more Big 12 coaches tomorrow and uh, officiating, correct? Director of officials is going to speak tomorrow as well. Um, so, Mike, we will let you go. We got another big day tomorrow. We'll record another podcast at the end to get your thoughts. Uh, so, thank you for your time. Enjoy uh, the star. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm Chris Anderson. I'm Mike Casaza. I'm off to get barbecue. <laughs>